want to take a few minutes to tell you about our latest sponsor, Benevity. Benevity is a company I know really well. Not only are they led by wonderful people who are driven by purpose and a desire to make a positive difference to the world, they're also global leaders in their field. So Benevity's technology facilitates workplace giving, volunteering, as well as grants management. It helps employees to deliver positive and meaningful impact through the support of different causes and different charities. And I know from personal experience, having used it only last week, that it really works and it's effective and efficient. So I wanted to give to a cause. I wanted my employee to match it. It all happened through through clicks online. Check them out. Go to the website, benevity.com. Highly recommend checking them out as a potential for your corporate, your business. Let's get back to the show. When I talk about philanthropy, you've really got to go back to the roots of the word, which is the love of humanity. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Derek Bardwell. Derek is an author, he's a charity trustee, he's a philanthropy advisor, he's also a thought leader, a former music journalist. Derek shines a light on the racism he experienced growing up in the UK and how this shaped him and also his career choices and chances. He's written two books, the first, No Win Race, which explores race and racism in modern Britain through sport, and the second, Giving Back, How to Do Good Better, where he critiques modern-day philanthropy at the same time he presents new ways of giving that he believes will bring real meaningful change and positive impact. Phenomenal conversation. It's a long one. It goes beyond the hour. It's definitely worth it. You're going to get a lot out of it. Before I jump into the show, can I just say, whatever platform you're on, whether on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please hit follow. It really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy the episode. Derek Bardwell, massive warm welcome to Pepsi Podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. You're the CEO of 10 Years Time. What's this mission? What, what does it do? Well, we work with ambitious donors and foundations to really rebalance power, repair harm, and to do so by resourcing racial and economic justice with care and consideration and confidence. So we we create, you know, and curate learning experiences and opportunities for, you know, family offices, high net worth individuals, foundations, etc., to really, you know, take a more holistic, equitable and reparative approach to their philanthropy and indeed their investments too. And so I'd, I'd picked up that you one of the statements is you wanted to inject ambition into philanthropy. Yeah, absolutely. Because so much of philanthropy, and when I say this, I say this through the lens of philanthropy as an institution, meaning, you know, what you commonly have as you know, grant agreements that are limited to three years with restricted funding, with agendas that are set by boards that are often very divorced from the social issues that they're meant to be serving, you know, and, and very siloed in operation. You know, you have health grants, education grants without really looking at how the two might be interconnected. You know, these institutional practices are very uh, restrictive. They are very much geared towards quite short-term gains instead gains instead of systemic and long-term gains. So for me, the ambition really lies in funders and wealth holders to really do things significantly differently, to really look at wealth and their giving, not just through the lens of their philanthropy, which often can be a really minor percentage of the amount of money that they hold, but looking at their investments, looking at the way that their money might be harming um, or the way they've accumulated the, their money might be harming the planet um, and ensuring that they're not offsetting, you know, the two or three percent of the philanthropic giving 
that they're involved in with, um, you know, offsetting some really extractive practices. So for me, the ambition really lies in philanthropists and wealth holders looking at this way of giving very differently, but also to do things in real time, you know, not to be sitting there and worrying so much about a legacy of having your name on a building, but really understanding that people need these resources now and with a high level of urgency, but need to do it in a way that's going to be very trust-based and enable those of solutions who are often those uh, of the most impacted communities to really determine their own destinies. And you describe yourselves as a philanthropy advice and education company. I know there's been a reluctance for people to pay for those services, but do you feel like the timing is right and and actually people are willing to maybe consider that their approach has been the wrong approach and actually they do need some help and maybe some institutions that surprise you who have reached out to you? Do you guys struggle to get work? Has has it been... Uh, have you guys been busy and, and these, you know, these people willing to pay for this sort of advice and, and education? Yeah, I mean, we've been busy and we've always been busy, but we've been doing it for a number of years. So it's not like, you know, doing philanthropy education and advice is new to us. Clearly uh, for us, it's, uh, you know, I've been CEO since May 2021, but the organization has been around for a number of years. I think, yes, there has been certainly been a change over the last two, three years, post-COVID, post the lynching of George Floyd. But I think there is a, a wider movement, not not just with ourselves, but with others such as, you know, Stephanie Brobby's Good Ancestors Movement and others, Baobab Foundation, Resource and Racial Justice, that are really, you know, starting to really inspect the nature of, you know, philanthropy advice, wealth advice, and other things that really is not trickling down or benefiting some of the most minoritized communities across the globe. And that plays out a hell of a lot in terms of the statistics, in terms of which organizations are getting the money versus those that are not. And we know statistically that racially organizations led by racially minoritized people gets a very poor amount of money proportionately to other organizations. We know that community organizing and activism and campaigning doesn't get as much money as it should. And so it's really what we would like to see is more philanthropy advisors really, you know, starting to push things a little bit more in terms of the advice they give. Because let's face it, the way that the world is going and the economic disparities that are held across the globe, we cannot continue to use philanthropy as something that really reinforces those disparities. And as I said, statistically, the data backs up that the way that philanthropy and the money is distributed, who holds the power, who gets the right to decide what is worthy and what is not, very much reinforces a number of those disparities that we see in society today. Yeah, and we want to unpack your, you've recently written a book, which is all about this stuff. I mean, shrinking the gap between donors and the people they wish to serve, I think that's a a really good summary of what you guys are are trying to do. If we take you right back, so look look back to your past, so you had a real, going back to sort of City of University times, but a real interest in creative writing. Did you aspire to be a journalist? Did Did you know that you're a good writer and that's something that you wanted to do? I've always had a lot to say, so I've always been a little mouthy. Um, but to be honest with you, what happened was, you know, I went, I was educated in Newham, which is in the East End of London. It wasn't, you know, um, a particularly good time in terms of the 1980s, you know, in terms of the standard of education at that particular point, the levels of racism that many of us as black youths and Asian youths um, at the time in in the 80s were, were facing racism and a lot of hostility from the police at that particular time. So one, from a very young age, you're highly politicized. But also at that particular point, it wasn't like the schools or the educators you were working with had particularly high or huge ambitions for you. So, you know, you felt kind of limited. I was really fortunate to have a really close family. Um, You know, my mum and dad and two older sisters were incredibly encouraging, nurturing and protective of me. And, you know, it was through their support that, you know, I was able to to get to college and then get to, to university. So it was an amazing thing 
for me being, you know, the first person in my family to go to, to university. But, you know, I came out of university, you know, thinking I've done everything that the state has told me to do. I was working at the time, so I wasn't you know, just going to, to uni, I was working jobs at the time. I got a good degree and did everything that the state told me to do. And then I couldn't find work. And, um, you know, it was quite blatant because there were certain times when I would go into a job interview. And as soon as the person interviewing me saw my face, they would say, we're not hiring anymore. And this was like the 90s. Uh, so for many people, they'll, they'll sort of look back and say, well, that was the sort of stuff that sort of ended in the 60s and 70s, right? I was like, no, this was happening in the, the 90s. I was going for jobs and couldn't get that. So I needed to make my way as a freelance writer um, at the time. It was the, the one thing that I thought I was I could do and that I was good at, and it wasn't reliant on me having to go for a job interview. So I just freelanced for a number of years, often free of charge, just to build my portfolio up and build my reputation. And so I kind of fell into it because, to be honest, I think it wasn't until I was, I think, 29. So it was a good seven or eight years after graduating before I actually got a job through a formal route. Just touching back on your sociology degree, if that's what you want to call it, I did a sociology degree and, and I remember in yeah, you know, first year of that I was a, a Marxist. <laughs> and then and then second and third year it sort of evolved and my thinking evolved. But, you know, a lot around structural structures of power and a and a lot of it kind of changes you and you realize that I, I realized or thought that actual personal psychology or individual psychology was sort of less important. It's much more around what's happening around you in society. So interest in writing but probably a changed human being having done that sociology degree and then experiencing the really direct forms of racism as well, like all of those things forming, starting to form you as a human being. So I agree. I think the thing that sociology taught me, I really enjoyed sociology. So let me start off by just saying from a real personal perspective, it was fantastic because it started to contextualize some of the individual experiences that I had been facing as a kid. You know, I, I was being stopped and searched by the police from probably before the age of 10. So when that's happening to you, you can't help but feel in your young mind that it's your fault and you, you know, are angry about it, but at the same time blaming yourself. And it's really difficult to find some of the answers. When you do sociology, it starts to get you thinking more about the systems that are at play and the things that sit around you in the context in which, you know, you're experiencing these things. For me, you know, reading Frantz Fanon during that time was a revelation because, you know, I it really started to tell me a lot more about, you know, how I was feeling, how people were responding to me, what that the dynamics of being, you know, second generation black in the UK was. Not that Fanon wrote about that. He wrote very much around the black experience in, in France. Um, but just the impact of colonialism and feelings were just really, really important for me in terms of my grounding. And of course, as I said, really looking at this through a structural and systemic lens as opposed to an individual one. Did that take away some of the anger and then you could direct it in different ways? Like you didn't take it so personally? Was that easier? I don't know. If you it understood was, it? Yeah, I don't know if it was. So understanding it is one thing. I think as time goes on, though, what frustrates you? So, so I don't know whether it erases the anger largely because what happens is that, you know, racism in particular mutates. So what I was experiencing in the 80s, which was quite blatant, it makes you angry because, you know, as I said, I would be walking down the street and a white guy in a van would just spit at me for no reason. Or someone would call you a, a name and stuff. And it's hard to deal with that. But at the same time, you can see it and it's quite blatant. I think as you get older and you start to see, you know, things happening that's a bit more subtle, you know, the glass ceilings um, when you're in jobs or the microaggressions or the way that you might be in ignored or treated by cabbies or things like that, you know, just the things that are more subtle. It, it's like 
yes, your anger might, you know, decrease a little when you're, when I was studying, yes, but your brain can't really turn off because the different forms of racism are hitting you at so many different angles that, you know, to not be alert to it is also quite, quite dangerous because then you fall back into that position of completely blaming yourself for everything that's happening to you. And that's that, that mindset can send you crazy because, you know, as I said, that's not to say that I did everything perfect in my life or anything. I'm not absolutely not saying that, but when you, and I've described this before when I've written, you know, you leave your house and everything feels like the spotlight is on you. And the spotlight is often really negative because it's almost waiting for you to to fail. So it's everything from, you know, getting on a bus and the bus driver not believing that you are, you know, 12 years of age and sending you off the bus to the the old lady that sees you and grabs her handbag because she feels that you're threatened by you to the shopkeeper that you know, uh, threatens to call the police on you because you're just looking at a magazine in the shop to the police that stops and search you. Because you're going through that on a daily basis, the scrutiny and the spotlight, this negative spotlight is on you all of the time. You know, it could erode your self-esteem. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It was absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm on a continual recovery from that because that was a daily occurrence. And as I said, the issue with that wasn't the case, you know, when someone spits at you from a, a, a van is one thing, you know, um, you're vexed about it, you're angry and all of that. Absolutely. But you can absolutely say that was wrong. You know, your young brain can say that was wrong when you are, you know, as I said, in a shop and you're looking at a magazine and someone threatens to call the police on you and you're young, you know, you can't help but, you know, come out of the shop and think, did I do something wrong or was it me? So when you're having to deal with that continually, it's really is, it blows your mind to, to be able to do it. So sociology helped with some of that, but I wouldn't say alleviated that because as I said, those versions of, you know, uh, people calling the police on you, those versions of people grabbing their handbag when they see you, you know, that happens and plays out in the workplace or in employment and in other spheres in different ways. So yeah, to try and alleviate not going crazy around it, you do need to, to find ways and mechanisms to be able to resolve it within yourself, yes, but also sort of understand it from a societal and uh, contextual perspective. Did writing become like, really important, Descri- you know, what you've all described just then, yeah. something that you knew you could do and something that you had power, some of the power back? Yeah, I didn't think... Um, I mean, I wouldn't turn around. I, I just enjoyed writing. There's part of me that, you know, could tell you, yeah, there was something super deep and cathartic about it. And and there is, you know, because I, I really enjoy it. You know, so yeah, there is something around that. There is some healing around that. There is some, how can I put it? Because the expectations of me when I was a kid were so low, from so many of my teachers. It wasn't really until I I got to college that I sort of met teachers that sort of believed that I had talent and whatnot. You know, there is a sort of part of me that's like sticking two fingers up, uh, uh, you know, the education system around some of that. And then there's part of it that says got quite a bit to say and writing is a way that enables me to really express some of that and with giving back my second book because I really wanted to talk to people about really looking at the damages that have been done to people and planet particularly black brown and indigenous peoples and to really look at the way they contribute to society less around giving and more around giving back to those that where so much has been taken away from them because of our systems or our capitalist systems, it's become a form of something that enables me to talk about those things. But similarly, I I started off very much as a a music journalist because I love music, particularly reggae music. And, you know, was fortunate enough in my early days when, when, again, when I couldn't get work, I was fortunate enough to build up enough of a portfolio for myself to, 
really do some really interesting work as a music journalist, you know, interviewing Jay-Z and Beyonce when she was in Destiny's Child and a number of the big reggae acts from Buju Banton to, to Beanie Man and express myself in that way too. So I'd never would have had the confidence to interview uh, musicians because they always gave you such, it looked like from the outside, they just give you such a hard time. But so where did that confidence for you come and approaching those, those what would be big stars? Or I, I guess they weren't. So one, they weren't big stars at the time. And, and I think it was a very different climate back then. So it, when I was a, a music journalist in the 90s, there wasn't so much restrictions around the artists in the same way. So this is predates social media. It predates sort of 24-7 news cycles that you have on television um, at the moment. So the case was is that there, if you were a, an American artist, you had the national newspapers, yes. You had some of the popular music press that was around at the time, which which would have been Melody Maker and Enemy, maybe The Face. And then you had a really vibrant black and urban music press, um, publications like Touch Magazine and Echoes and magazines like that. And you also had like lots of independent black press like the Voice newspaper and New Nation. So, you know, I worked for the music press and for those black newspapers and you'd get time with those artists. They wouldn't have massive entourages around them as you perhaps have now a lot of them were not having from the age of 10 years of age having training on media training and stuff so a lot of the time it was a little bit more raw quite a bit more honest in terms of the interviews that you were doing and as i said i didn't really have a huge amount of choice in terms of um work and how I could earn an income at that time because I couldn't find work in that way. So I just had to do the best I could with the tools that I had. I wasn't trained in any way. I just learned on the job, enjoyed it, but just worked my ass off to 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 become better at it and to to really um excel as best as I could. And that moved towards the voluntary sector. Mm. And and maybe just pivoting away from from writing and and music, you know, the music industry. What, what motivated that? I was really lucky that early in my journalism career, I met this guy called Justin Onyeka, who used to run a company called Power Moves with um, Paul Ryan and Lee Pinkerton. And they were a news agency and they hired me to cover reggae for them, for the various publications that they were working on. And he very much mentored me and, you know, supported me early in my career. And so it was always just something that I felt that I wanted to do when I was in a position to do so. So as a, when I was a journalist, I would always have like people that would write into the publications, you know, young people who were interested in journalism or wanted to get experience or wanted advice and stuff like that. So I just tried to do for those young people what Justin did for me, which was supporting them taking them along to to interviews, getting them placements in, like when I was at the music editor at The Voice newspaper, you know, they had a placement scheme there that was really sort of fantastic. So doing lots of work around that. So it, it just became part of my sort of practice that, you know, I'd be supporting young people. But then I would also realize that those that had more privileges were the ones that tended to succeed a bit more than those that might be just as talented, but didn't have as much infrastructure behind them to succeed in journalism. So I retrained as a youth worker while I was still writing. And what became a kind of, I don't know, 75% journalism, 25% youth work over the years just really moved towards more 75% youth work. You know, I was working in young offenders institutes and prisons, outreaching on different estates and really getting involved as a youth worker and the journalism kind of became more of a side role as things moved on. And that was uh, kind of my entry into the world of nonprofits. Yeah. And that, so that was with Headliner and that was combining journalism and, and work with young people. Yeah, absolutely. That was, <laughs> that was a dream job. Um, they were called Children's Express at the time. And I remember the first time that I went for a job with them, I was intending to get to the interview a good half an hour early. And 
on the train stop just before the station where I was about to, to get off. Uh, it, it literally must have been about two minutes away. The train stopped and there was, uh, I don't know, something had happened, but I ended up being stuck on that train for God knows how long and ended up being late for the interview. Um, and I was, and this is the, the years before you sort of had mobile phones and everything. So yeah. I just remember running to, to, to them late and just saying, I promise you, I promise you, I was going to be here early. And that kind of scuppered my attempt to get there. But I think about a year later, I interviewed with them again and it was just the perfect thing for me, you know, combining youth work and, and journalism was fantastic. I worked with this fantastic guy called Kumbo uh, Ajasa Olua, who was fantastic and, you know, just had a fantastic time combining two things that I was deeply passionate about. But it's sad to open your eye to some of the sort of failings or negative sides of, of sort of contracted uh, voluntary work or like charity work where, you know, like you've got these huge targets, you've yeah. got limited resources, you've got people whose starting point is just difficulty getting out of bed in the morning. Yes. But, but the, the mind started to really, or your observations were that the sum of this is, is not working. This is just needs changing. Yeah, it was a fabulous time. It was a difficult time because, you know, you would deliver deliver programs and we would have them evaluated. And, you know, once they're evaluated, it will tell you the things you were doing well and the things you were not doing so well. But overall, the evaluations all came back overwhelmingly positive. We achieved what we needed to achieve in terms of outcomes for young people. But what you'd also observe through that was that for so some of the the outcomes might be around employability or access to education and things like that. What you'd realize is that one, a lot of the people that were on the other end as grants managers really didn't have much of an understanding of the work you were doing and the complexity of it um, and looked at the way they would assess these things very much through the lens of ticking boxes. Secondly, yeah. it didn't matter how successful you were. Sometimes you just might not get any funding as a result of that so you know you'd be like well how can you you know it's like getting a first class degree and someone just taking it away it didn't make sense and then i think the final thing for me was just and this comes back to the complexity of it is that sometimes the person that's traveled far furthest in your program is that person that really has trouble just getting out of bed during the course of the day and somewhere along the line with the work that you've done they're not only getting out of bed but they are actively engaging um, and developing really great relationships and for them they are traveling so much further than the person that has a bit more infrastructure around them and ends up in college or university but in terms of how that person is assessed in the project, because they haven't gone to college or university, they're seen as a, a failure. It's marked down as a failure when they've travelled, uh, you know, major distances. So when you notice this, for me, my entry- funders were obsessed with it was the, the neat term, wasn't it? Not an education, employment, or training. Yeah, neat. and there were only really, you know, one outcome they were interested in, which is uh, you know, employment or training. Yeah, um, and like you say, there was it, it failed to recognise the journey that. And and because life's not not linear, right? So the sort of the, the really good stuff can come later. But if, yeah. you know, if you're if you've got someone motivated out of bed and engaged, whatever whatever they're engaged in, but that like you say, in that period of time with the way funding was structured, it didn't recognize that. It was so rigid. It, you know, it was, you were right. It was the meat to eat was at risk youth. There was so many just different terms for disadvantaged young people. And so much of it located the issues and the problems on them. So that was the other issue was that, again, most of these funding agreements really didn't take into context schooling, education, health, discrimination, and all of these other factors were problematic for young people. It just really tried to get young people into a job. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're happy in the job or whether they can stick into the job. It's like, here's your two or three year funding funds and just get them into something that on in our lens is really positive and you know as i said one of the things that it missed out on is the, the relational aspect of those um 
of those programs and where young people travel in that time. But as I said, also the kind of systemic and structural issues that sit around them and, and what factors that they play in um, young people facing those levels of disadvantage. And so this takes you to sort of 2006 and you apply for a job at the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust, is that right? And you, you end up working for them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, it's a bit like Sean has expressed, just an absolute dream job. It might be really useful if, because we've got listeners from around the world, but just for our listeners to understand who Stephen Lawrence was, tragically murdered at a bus stop in Plumstead and by you know, a racially motivated attack. And it was a trust set up in his name to forward, uh, to ensure that never happens again, but also to sort of forward his legacy. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, you know, it was a famous case in the UK and Stephen Lawrence is very much of, of my generation. So, you know, we were of similar age and... Um, he was 18, wasn't he, when he was murdered? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so when it happened, it just was, it was us. When I say us, I mean myself and my my peer group, we would always look at that incident and say that could have been us, that could be us. And as someone that had been, as a teenager, chased by racists before and stuff like that, you always look back on that. But it also changed the law in the UK in terms of institutional racism, and it was the biggest kind of... Um, sort of policy change and also race so around stop and search from from the in terms of police and well, the way they police primarily around institutional racism in the policing because a number of those that allegedly were responsible for that murder were not at the time arrested for it and there was huge issues around the police and policing particularly yes around stops and searches but also in terms of cover-ups in terms of who they were policing and who they were protecting because often the the victims of these racist incidents were treated more like the perpetrators. So it changed that. And probably up until the Black Lives Matter protests after the lynching of George Floyd in 2020, it was probably the most significant race relations piece of uh, legislation that we had had for, for many, many years. So to work in the trust, which was set up in his name, was a deep, deep honour. It was also something where, while they were doing lots of work around anti-racism um, and around policing, they also very much focused on Stephen's aspiration, which was very much around wanting to become an architect. And so we ended up in a building in Deptford, which was um, built by David Ajay, which was a fantastic building, was built around supporting young people into careers in the built environment, into design, into engineering, really looking at that inspiration and aspiration as a way of honouring Stephen, you know, by getting young people from a more diverse backgrounds to be designing and redesigning the environments and the places in which they they lived. So on so many different levels, it was just a wonderful place for me to to work. Yeah. And so you weren't a deliverer of services, but you you worked with partners and you're it was an enabler, like it, it that's the um, role it played? Yeah, we, we delivered some services, but we also recognized that we could broker lots of opportunities for, for young people as well. So we worked with Imperial College on a robotics program. We sent some young people who were going to schools in Lewisham to a robotics competition at NASA. In, which I think was 2009, if I remember correctly. We worked with Central St. Martin's University, where we had a number of their students mentoring design students that we were working with. So there's lots of brokering of opportunities, but we also looked at the centre as a bit of a, an auntie or uncle to a number of the students we were working with, meaning that we were always that place that they could come back to if they needed a home or they needed someone to, to speak to. So yeah, we, we would do some direct services ourselves, but there was a lot of brokering of opportunities for young people. And a number of those young people have got their own architectural practices now. They're doing some amazing stuff across the globe in terms of their work. But what's lovely about them is that it's not just them designing buildings and 
beautiful buildings at that. There's also a, a kind of social justice lens to a number of those young people and the work that they do and the type of environments that they're creating, which is a fantastic legacy. We also used to run a bursary program as well, which supported young people financially to architecture courses, which can take a number of years to complete. And you're looking from the outside in, Stephen's parents really stood out for me. Just, you know, I think the mother, Doreen, like really massive strength personality-wise and, um, you know, the charity endured and played a a significant role in, in in a new type of Britain. Must have been a hard one. You talked about it before, being so close to your doorsteps, so close to, you know, could have been you or your and your friends. Must have been a hard one to leave in 2009. What sort of turned your head and you ended up joining Esme Fairburn Foundation. So you, you became one of those funders. But yeah, what was the sense, what was going on in your head at the time? Yeah, so we, we, we launched, so I was there when we launched the centre. And I know things have changed there, but Doreen, who's an amazing woman and is running now the Stephen Lawrence Foundation, continues to be the forefront of social and racial justice in, in the UK. She's amazing. But for me personally, I really needed to understand how money flowed in this charitable sector or this charitable world, because some of the dynamics that I described when I was at what was then called Children's Express, but became headliners in terms of grant managers not really understanding the work you're doing, the lack of nuance in these funding agreements and targets and this concentration on individual blame as opposed to systemic change. These were all things that I really wanted to understand. Um, So for me, it was really important to go to that other side and really understand how money flowed, but also having been someone that delivered projects for a number of years, also tried to change it and do things differently and try to challenge the status quo in terms of the way the funding was administered at the time. What I found difficult, I remember startling actually that, you know, you'd have people turn up and they'd be part of your service delivery team and they'd say, you know, my name's Mark and actually, um, you know, my role is fully funded until the end of next week. That's being glib, but there was a real insecurity. And so it it's felt like... Glib, this, it's true. I, I remember yeah. there was many years where I was raising funding for, for my for my post and that that was part of the problem is how do you um you know so you're working with vulnerable young people and vulnerable young people who've been bounced around from different department to different department in local services for years and so you come in as a charity or social enterprise to support them but then you're potentially not going to be any better because ultimately, if you don't get funding, you're going to be out of a job in six to seven months time. So yeah, it's, it's, I understand what you're saying and being clear, but it's actually very true that, that that was the case or that continues to be the case. Yeah. Sort of a scarcity of, of it all the time, eh? like that, that whole, and you touched on there now, like creating this environment which is replicates the chaos possibly of a lot of the yes. young people's lives as well. Like it, yes. it just becomes, you know, like it replicates the same crap they've just been in, yes. um, yeah. and, and therefore wholly lets them down. I think so. You end up in this this foundation cultural shock. Like, what was it like when you arrived? Because you know you've been scrappy, proving your worth at every funding meeting. You've been on the other side. What was it like when you walked into Esme Fairburn? It was, it was, uh, everyone was so damn nice. (laughs) And it was, and when I say so damn nice, I mean it in a sense of it was, it was the place I worked at the longest because I, I think I was just in disbelief for such a long period of time that, you know, I think one of the first questions I asked somewhat naively was what's the kind of funding arrangement here because in my head I was still on this two-year funding cycle where I'd have to be <laughs> raising money or something like that you know and and so for me it was and I was also really used to working around the clock when you're a youth worker you're what you know when I was at Children's Express we would work on Saturdays we would work you know four evenings a week so for me, leaving an office at, I don't know, 5 or 5.30 in the day was, was 
it was just really weird and it was really, really strange, you know. This is post-global financial crisis. So this is, job security must have been a massive positive. You're utilizing all your knowledge from the sector and you you know it from a, you're on the commissioning side suddenly, but you, you know it from the service provision perspective. Did you, and this is, you know, I know that Esme Furban, great reputation, great, great organization, but pe- were people open to and interested in your perspective, where you'd come from? Is that why they'd hired you? Or was there some resistance initially? Or Because you must have been telling them things that they didn't necessarily want to hear. Yeah. Or about so uncomfortable. Think, I, I would say like the first year or so, I was probably quite cautious being in there because it was such a different environment to, you know, when you're delivering programs and projects. So there was definitely a bit of care for me at the time in terms of how I managed myself. And then when I'd sort of built some equity while I was there, then I started to to push it a bit more in terms of some of my thoughts and building out as it was the the education strategy that they had at the time. But I think they took that largely because I had built up some equity um, at that particular time. But I would say that some of the changes that I made at the time while I was there, probably still relatively conservative to certainly some of the things that I am speaking of now, because there was lots of things around the philanthropic sector that I didn't know in terms of things like investments and and how the money flowed more broadly than the grant making. So yes, I was able to do some really different things and stuff while I was within the context of the grant making. What I didn't tackle at that time was the wider bits around investment, where the wealth had been accumulated from or other bits like that. So when you confine some thoughts towards the grant making, yeah, you can move things quite a bit, but I wouldn't necessarily say it was perceived as a massive threat because it's not really stuff that's really impacting on on the bottom line of an organization. And yeah, so one of their themes is is disadvantage, and um, you would have had some wonderful insights into that because you'd come from a, an area which there was disadvantage. In terms of so, what's come through in your career at this point is this sport bubbling along looks like on the side. You end up at Laureus as a head of programs, which is uh, an interesting organisation. It's effectively badged up as sport for good type of activities you then go on to the national lottery community fund but sports playing a part and writing hasn't gone away like it's writing starting to sort of do you continue to write during that period so at that time i was doing a little bit of writing but i'd kind of abandoned it i would say around 20 no 2009 2010 i did my creative writing course master's And I finished and did some work then. I was trying to sell a book at that particular time. Had a couple of publishers interested at that particular point. But although they didn't say this to me, to my face, in reality, what they were really telling me was, we don't think we can sell a book around race and sport at that particular time, which sounds utterly ridiculous now. But going back to 2009, 2010, there wasn't a huge level of, of interest. And there wasn't a was huge... Was that no-win no win race? Was that yeah, the, it was the first conception yeah. of that. So I'd done a, a book called Who Stole the Soul prior to No Win Race, which was around sports and racism, but not quite what No Win Race would become. No Win Race was kind of based on that. And we went out, me and my, my agent went out, and every time we would speak to publishers and then say, yeah, we really like the, the writing, but we're not sure we can sell this or we don't know how we'd be able to market this or, or sell it. So I got a bit despondent because that was like, you know, we were doing that for several years and nothing was really resonating. I You're was doing, doing this in your spare time? Like this is, in, this is literally in the weekend and night times? Yeah, yeah, mm. this is all on the side. I did a few essays. What kind of resurrected my interest in writing was – I started writing for a publication called The Weeklins, or it was a, a website called The Weeklins. A wonderful lady called Jennifer Kabat hired me, and she just gave me free reign to write these essays. So I'd write essays on, 
you know, reggae music. I did something on the 2012 Olympics. I did a thing on the melancholy of manhood. And, you know, so I was really just able to explore loads of different issues around racism, masculinity, and things of that nature. And writing for her just enabled me to have that level of freedom again that I hadn't felt. So, And I was only really writing maybe one essay every, I don't know, six months or anything. So it wasn't a huge amount. But then, you know, I went to, you know, I was at Esme, and I went to Laureus, and I was working around that. And then I entered a competition which was for racially diverse writers who were not published or didn't have book deals. I I can't remember what it was called. I think it was called Right Now, actually, which was done by Penguin. And I entered that competition and that really, I can't remember, I, I got down to the final 10 or five or something, but what was fantastic is that one, it got me right into deadline again. And two, I got some really great advice from, you know, as part of that competition, I got really good feedback and advice from different editors about my work. And that just enabled me to have the confidence to go out and really pursue a publishing deal. And of course, by that time, and we're moving on to 2017, 2018, the climate had really changed in terms of black writing in in the UK. You know, um, there was various books that had started to come out at that time, like Rennie's book, um, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, Carla's book, uh, F. Hirsch's book. There was a range of books that were coming out. And, and aside from that, there were amazing works from the likes of Bernadine Evaristo as well. And it meant that the, the climate for Black writers at that particular time changed. So I based No Win Race on the original book that I'd written, Who Stole the Soul?, and um, was able to get a deal uh, soon after. And what was the reaction like to the book? Yeah, it was a good reaction. I mean, it, it got, you know, it was part of the sort of Financial Times and Sunday Times book of the year lists and was um, long listed and shortlisted for a couple of awards. So it was amazing. And it was at that point that I moved out of sort of full-time work in terms of working in philanthropy and did more consultancy work while I was combining that with writing. Because at that point, it was uh, becoming a little unsustainable to be able to do, you know, the two things side by side full time. So yeah, it was it was a massive change career wise at the time. It was a welcome career change because it moves me out of sort of nine to five working in that way. And for me, it was never nine to five working because I'd work nine to five and then come back home and do more work in the evening. So it always felt like I was working around the clock. So I just needed to be in a situation where my working hours could just be a little bit more flexible in that way. And how, you know, when did, when did the idea for giving back how to do good better, when did that start to form? And when did you, because you, you know, as you said, like from that Esme Fairburn job to, to now and the challenges you're laying down, you know, you say things now like in a just world, institutional philanthropy would not exist, which, you know, I, I imagine not all of the philanthropy sector want to hear that, but, you know, you're laying down some significant challenges, but when did that book start to form in your mind and when did you start to get the confidence to write it? 2014 to 2015, I did a Churchill Fellowship where I went to the to Boston and New York to really look at new approaches to tackling racism in education. I met some incredible people while I was there, like uh, Rashad Robinson from Color of Change, Rinku Sen, who was then at Race Forward, Eric Dawson at Peace First, um, Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, uh, amazing people doing fantastic things. And so that was where it came from, was there was just a whole bunch of stuff that I had seen and that I would go on to see, particularly when I was in Laureus. I I went to Laureus and was able to travel across the globe to see different projects. Back home in the UK, there was tons of unbelievable people that I had met or had worked with, like Fazana Khan, who were doing amazing stuff and often doing it, you know, largely under-resourced. So the original conception of the book was more around just exposing all of this really 
fabulous work that's going on often, you know, around the corner for us and on our doorsteps and really taking people into that, that world. I think as I moved on into philanthropy and, and the book is still very much around that. I think the context, um, was built from all of my experiences working in philanthropy and really looking at the book in in three sort of ways and it's the kind of standard head heart and hands approach you know so the head being the first part of the book really contextualizes not just my experiences in philanthropy but what's wrong with it and why it's not working particularly for minoritized communities so some of that is quite technical information but some of it just brings in the realities of what philanthropy represents, which is often, as I said, something that is offsetting lots of really extractive practices, often appeases social movements and activity, is very top-down, et cetera, et cetera. Then I use the second part of the book, which is the heart bit, to really look at what inspires us to give. And really that's when I bring in voices of other people that I am aware of, know, some I know well, some I don't know so well, but just really uh, wanting to understand from them why they give because it's can't divorce your giving from what sits and rests in your heart and your personal experiences. And then the third part of the book, which is the bulk of it, is really around stories of amazing people across the globe that are creating change in the most deepest, uh, profoundest, systemic and intersectional ways and really highlighting their fabulous work and really just emphasizing that sometimes you might see certain charities on television and it's easy to donate to to them or because they've got enough money or a lot of money and resource but there is actually this vibrant world of people that are creating alternative systems incredible activism people that are creating the future that we should be investing in and really just sort of going through some of the key principles of how we can start to change our mindset towards really resourcing justice in that particular way yeah and kind of the thing that's came through with me and i've been doing the audio book but is you know the importance of proximity this older model of uh, or more traditional model of um philanthropy yeah and, and i philanthropy. think that's yeah. yeah, and I think that's that's an important thing. So uh, philanthropy as an institution, and I always say this to people, that when I talk about philanthropy, you've really got to go back to the roots of the word, which is the love of humanity. And what you see in philanthropy as an institution is not a love of humanity, because a love of humanity wouldn't leave institutions sitting on massive endowments, giving away only 2% of their wealth towards their philanthropy. That's not a love of humanity. That's hoarding money, that's preservation, that's accumulating wealth. And when you're not looking at where you are or how you're accumulating that wealth, sorry, when you're not looking at how you accumulated that wealth in the first place and then how you're investing it to preserve that wealth, but only, you know, then still just giving away two or 3% of your income. That's that's not a love of humanity. So when I say that institution of philanthropy needs to go, it's like that conception of giving away 2% or whatever is what really needs to go and to really start to reinvent it back into a way where, as I said, the love of humanity is philanthropy in a world where risk and reward are shared and where communities get to determine their own destinies. So that transference of philanthropy from being this institutional and quite restrictive and quite frankly unambitious a lot of the time way of funding moving towards something that's more radical and enables communities to really build their wealth and their assets in a way that's good for them as opposed to how those in power would like to see them mm. build their wealth is is really important transition for me yeah and the messages that you've you know made or the points you've made in the book and the things that you're saying what has the reaction been from you know, the wider public, but also the philanthropy sector. Like, have you, have people taken you to task? Have people reacted well? Like, what's been the sort of majority reaction? The majority reaction has been good. Um, it's really difficult because at the end of the day, I, it's great to have a, a fantastic reaction, but to be honest, until I start to see real shifts in the way people do things, then it's, it's nice, but I want to see people really start to rebalance power 
and to repair harm in the way that they deliver and resource racial and economic justice. And so for me, it's nice when people give you respect for the book as, you know, as much as I've done many events and had loads of challenges from people, which is also fine. I just want there to be a significant rebalancing or shifting of power to enable us to move philanthropy from this institutional practice to one to more of a cultural one so until i start to see that then i'm happy that the book is doing well i'm happy that people enjoy it i'm happy that people have you know as as i met with someone recently and they said yeah I'm, i'm moving away from this job because because of your book and it's taught me a lot of things that i was feeling and thinking There's a lot of things that I value that are really important, particularly how people of color view the book in terms of reading some of my experiences and understanding that they're going through similar things. That means a hell of a lot. But I also just want to see a lot of social change also evolve too. And once I start to see that, then I'll probably be a bit happier. And, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily rest on my laurels, but I'd certainly be a lot happier to see certain shifts start to result. Yeah. And someone who's putting their money where their mouth is and someone who really wants uh, change is, is a Formula One driver called Lewis Hamilton. He's made you or you've, you've been welcomed onto the, the board of a foundation that he's, he's founded, Mission 44. Is that one of the things amongst others that excites you about redressing some of the stuff and, and making things different in the future? Yeah, it's important to differentiate that Mission 44 has its own CEO and board and its own way of achieving change. And some of it aligns with me, some of it will be different to my thoughts and values around it. But essentially for me, I think it's an exciting and unbelievable opportunity for really significant change in philanthropy. But I also think that with uh, 30 Percy, who I'm sitting on the board with them as well, who've done some amazing stuff in the last three or four years, that I, if I'm going to sort of sit on the board, it's because I believe that those foundations have the ability clout ambition to really have levels of transformative change that can really benefit people in this society and and that's 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 huge for me because there's not enough foundations doing that some of them i think it will change a lot because we've got the great wealth transfer so there'll be a number of new wealth holders coming into play financially who will do things differently i found that being involved in foundations right from an early stage as I have been with 30 Percy and now with Mission 44, you're able to see where these foundations can start to do things differently and not spend so many years trying to undo unhealthy practices, but actually, you know, start off in a way that starts with high levels of ambition, but also in a more collaborative and more inclusive way in terms of how they design their funding programs. Absolutely. And, and I recently had Rodri Davies on purposely. And, you know, one thing I, I really like about what he's saying is, is utilizing the past or history so we don't repeat the same mistakes. And then we, you know, we clear the way for a, a sort of a more effective and impactful future. Yeah, that's, and I, I agree. I think that the thing that I would say is that there's lots of great things in the past that have been ignored particularly in the way that communities, black and brown, indigenous, working class communities traditionally have done in terms of their giving, in terms of their philanthropy, which have been ignored. And I think actually those things are what you want to see or preserve or bring back. Those things to me are interesting. I think some of the more extractive ways in which philanthropy as an institution has has been how that's been delivered, yeah, that absolutely needs to evolve and move away from that. But I would also say that some of those traditions that we've had in the past are also really useful learning for how we should do things in the future. Mm. And I'm sure you've you look back at the, your body of work and, and the roles you've had and the, the stuff you're involved in now, and you talked about part of it is was two fingers up to those maybe those teachers or those people around there when you were younger have you had the opportunity to sort of to go back and flex <laughs> show them <laughs> no, how far I, you've come that that was a few years ago when i i felt that um i don't really feel that way so much because and one of the things that was really good 
write in the book was was actually not you know as I said I felt that way probably a few years ago with giving back actually just paying homage to the late John Tulin one of my teachers at Barking College Mehmet Ale Dikadam who was one of my lecturers at Middlesex University you know the late Dr Chilva who was a fabulous English teacher that I had at school right down to friends of mine like Darren Crosdale, Ruth Ibegbuna, Shivanti Lauten, who were all teachers, just really emphasizing actually I'm gonna speak to the people that were doing the work and were fantastic and what skills, attributes and brilliance that they have. So yeah, it's less of a two fingers up and more of a actually this is what good looks like. Let's start to celebrate that and let's start to and I know it's not fashionable to say this, but very much the book is celebrate. You know, I might critique philanthropy, but I also want to pay tribute to people like, I don't know, Rowena Estwick at Guyers and St. Thomas and Jenny Oppenheimer at Lankelly Chase and all of these fantastic people and very much in the book emphasize their brilliance and what they do often unheralded a lot of the time and really say you know learn from them i'm not going to spend all of my time talking about what's crap and rubbish let me talk about the stuff that's good and the people that are good and if you don't believe me contact them hear more about their work find out what they've done and see what they've done and replicate how they've been able to achieve change in their work. And that for me is really important to make sure that there is something that emphasizes um, those fabulous people that have done game-changing work. Some of it is part of my background and my story that I emphasize, but there's also those amazing people that I've mentioned there who are doing it now, we should be listening to in the future. Yeah, wonderful. And is there another book? Have you given up the keyboard? You got rid of the quill? Is there another book in the in the uh, offering? or? I can't say too much about it at the moment. I've got two more actually that I'm working on um, at the moment. So um, I can't say much about them at this particular point. But yeah, it was the same thing when No Win Race came out. I pretty much started dusting off some of my old notes from my Churchill Fellowship report and started thinking about giving back. And then as soon as giving back came out, I pretty much started thinking about the book straight away yeah. and i don't know what weird psychology sits behind that but yeah i'm i'm sort of embarking on a couple more pieces of work at the moment excellent Derek bardwell massive thank you for joining me on purposely brilliant thank you really appreciate it take care thanks for listening to purposely podcast please subscribe and leave a review i hope you like what you're hearing because i sure do 